0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Sankar from the Afghan eye to go through the past 40 years of Afghan history in order to combat Western concerning trolls about women in Afghanistan. So let's get started. What made you start Afghan I?
1: Well, I uh, grew up in Afghanistan in the late 80s during the communist era. And as a very young boy, I was accustomed to reading newspapers, uh, listening to uh, radio, watching TV, and observing what is being said about Afghanistan, because Afghanistan was at war. And as a very young kid, I was uh, affected by what I observed. And I always had this fascination with news media, politics. Uh, My father was in politics. He worked for the communist government. My uncles were also uh, involved in that regime. So when I uh, later became a refugee here in the Netherlands, I uh, always uh, resented the fact that the media has this very arrogant attitude towards people outside Western Europe, especially uh, in non-Western countries such as Afghanistan. They're not really interested in understanding people. They just like to talk over us. And I always felt that we should tell our own story. We should uh, be the ones who explain our society, our culture, our politics, and our problems. uh, And we shouldn't rely on others. I uh, did a master's degree in uh, journalism and new media. I even considered uh, working for Dutch media, but uh, during my internship and everything, I felt like... uh, It's not the right uh, place for me to work because I'm not going to change the system from within. That's not Mm -mm. my thing. So I was always involved in blogging. I uh, have always produced videos. I have also helped a lot of other people who are content producers, whether they're writers, journalists, um, uh, reporters uh, here in the Netherlands. And I was involved in many uh, projects, many other previous projects for Muslims here in the Netherlands, but also internationally oriented Afghan websites. And my uh, friend, Ahmad Walid Kakar, who is based in London, we uh, we sort of felt the same way about many issues. But since he's much younger than me, he uh, he's about 15, 20 years younger <laughs> than me. Uh, he was very shy and he was very... Uh, Uh, reluctant. And I was told him, you know, you don't have to be shy or you don't have to be humble. You are more knowledgeable than all these white people with these fancy titles who can't even distinguish one city from another city in Afghanistan. So you are entitled to speak. And he said, you know what, what I'm going to do, we're going to launch a new platform. We're going to call it Afghan Eye. And I said, if you do it, I will be with you 100%. And yes, the rest is history.
0: So let's focus on between 1996, when I guess what we now know as the Taliban took over control of a large area of Afghanistan in 1992, when the government fell, there was a civil war. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: The roots of the civil war in Afghanistan were laid down uh, actually in the, in the 70s, because uh, in the 1960s and 70s, what happened in Afghanistan is that uh, there was some sort of freedom of political activity uh, allowed by the monarchy. So they allowed uh, the left-leaning parties to uh, be uh, politically active, to participate in elections. Uh, because of the constitution of the sixties, new constitution of the sixties, and uh, we also had other parties who were more conservative, and they were inspired by, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood,
0: the one in Egypt.
1: Yes, uh, the one in Egypt and uh, the Jamaat Islami uh, of India and Pakistan. Oh,
0: okay, the same. Oh, it's the same party. Okay, got it. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so so these political trends in Afghanistan they became politically active after a long period where actually all political activity was not allowed by the monarchy. But once they became politically active, the problem is is that while some sort of participation was allowed, uh, there was not any substantial change in the society, in its politics, in its economy. So the progressives, they felt that They need to take action and make sure that Afghanistan moves ahead and doesn't lag behind Uh, while the whole world is moving ahead. Afghanistan was a sort of a buffer between the Soviet Union and the allies of the United States. Uh, Mm -hmm. So for that reason, the progressives, they said, we need to overthrow the monarchy. Uh, And a cousin of the king, uh, uh, Sardar Mohammed Daoud Khan, His allies were Afghan uh, communists and Marxists who were uh, either educated in Soviet Union or they were uh, familiar with the Marxist ideology. Mm -hmm. And they together overthrew the monarchy and they created the First Republic under leadership of Daoud. Uh, So Daoud was a progressive leader and he initiated many projects such as building dams and everything. Some of those projects are still not implemented, but people still talk about how to implement those projects in order to help uh, advance Afghanistan. But sadly, the problem was that uh, the Cold War had a lot of influence on Afghanistan. And on the one hand, the president, Daoud Khan, tried to steer away from being engulfed in any sort of Uh, conflict with either side in the Cold War, his own uh, supporters, his own allies, the the, the Marxists, they eventually uh, felt that even he was not progressive enough. So that's why they overthrew him. And that's how Afghanistan became a uh, communist uh, government. They uh, created that uh, regime because they felt that uh, the previous regime was not doing enough to move Afghanistan ahead from being a very primitive, pre-modern agricultural society into a socialist society. So for that reason, when they came into power in the late 70s, they uh, tried to eliminate all their political opponents. Uh, Not just their political opponents, but uh, you see, Afghanistan is a pre-modern society, which means that the society is organized based on Small communities all across the country, and each community has their own uh, leaders, like uh, spiritual leaders, tribal Mm -hmm. leaders, etc. Now that communist regime, they uh, started executing a lot of these people because they categorized them as feudal,s as oppressors of the uh, people, and this resulted in a situation where the armed opposition, the insurgents, against the communists uh, was not entirely based on popular support. There were a lot of opportunists. There were a lot of people who were just taking advantage of the chaos, and they became organized as the Mujahideen. And those groups...
0: Hold on. Um, so in 1979, um, uh, there's a lot of WikiLeaks cable that talks about how the U.S. armed various ethnic factions in the tune of, like, U.S. and U.K., of course, to like billions of dollars. So was that when these different, is the warlord the right word for them or whatever they are?
1: Yeah, Yeah, see, the insurgents against the regime first emerged in 1973 after the Ah. uh, overthrowing of the monarchy.
0: After Zahir Shah, right? Yes,
1: yes. The first insurgents were uh, people who were actually uh, either students at Kabul University, such as Ahmad Shah Masood and Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there were other figures who were just prominent religious scholars uh, like uh, uh, Jalaluddin Uh, Mm Haqqani. And they felt that overthrowing of the monarchy by the communists will result into a situation where Afghanistan becomes a atheist secular society like the Soviet Union. So that's why the first insurgency against Dawood started in 1973. But since the Dawood regime basically tried to suppress any kind of political dissent, these groups, they all fled to Pakistan. Once they fled to Pakistan, that's how their relationship with the United States, the allies of the United States were established because the West saw Afghanistan as a country that might become part of the Eastern Bloc. And for that reason, they started supporting the opposition. But the opposition had already its own support base in the country of rural conservative Afghans who were opposed to communism and uh, the, uh, basically the progressive uh, elite who were in power in Kabul. But what happened is that when, when we talk about the 1990s, when basically Afghanistan became a, a Hobbesian state of nature of everyone fighting av- against everyone, this was because uh, first the communists tried to kill all, people who had some sort of social standing within their society, where they could actually uh, have a positive influence on their community, people who could preserve stability and uh, uh, order, Uh, those people were all executed. And then when the insurgents uh, started operating all across rural Afghanistan, uh, some of these insurgents group they also start killing a lot of Uh, significant figures, tribal leaders, imams, everything, people who they saw as not loyal towards the insurgency. So both the insurgents as the government basically destroyed the, 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 the social fabric in Afghanistan. And once the communist regime fell, once the Soviet Union was gone, these groups, they were led by people who were not really interested in serving their people, their community, but they were power-hungry warlords. and that's why, from 1992 till 1996, Afghanistan was in a total. Uh, chaos uh, there was civil war and uh, like uh, some parts of the city were even divided into different uh, groups so so uh, you could go three blocks and then beyond three blocks there was an, another government and they, w- they <laughs> would even use different currency so that's how ridiculous uh, the situation became in the 90s
0: hold on um so from what i read um it i guess in 1992 everyone came to kabul in april And then Gulbuddin Hekmatyar started to shell parts of Kabul that was controlled by Ahmad Shah Massoud's group. Is that what happened?
1: Uh, That's not entirely accurate. Uh, What happened is that President Najibullah, the, the, the leader of the communist regime, he tried to create a policy of national reconciliation uh, and he tried to make overtures towards the Mujahideen parties, the uh, insurgents, and uh, tried to convince them that, uh, okay, the, the, the Russians are leaving. Let's make peace. Let's uh, organize a, an election, a, a transitional government. And even the United Nations was involved. But within his own party, within Najibullah's own inner circle, uh, there were elements who felt that the Afghanistan should never become an inclusive government where the people with whom they have fought they uh, become involved in governing uh, the society. So they uh, collaborated with Ahmad Shah Massoud to overthrow Najib.
0: Is that um, General Dostum who is a collaborator?
1: Yes, uh, Dostum was a militia leader. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, he was a communist militia leader. He wasn't so much convinced by communist ideology. I I, I think he can't even read. So I doubt <laughs> that he ever read uh, anything written by Marx. But uh, what is important is that other elements like Nabi Azimi, uh, who was a uh, prominent general, he was a, a very significant military leader in the government. He was part of a conspiracy against Najib. Uh, because they uh, were involved in that co- conspiracy along with Jamiat Islami under the leadership of uh, Burhanuddin Rabani and Ahmad Shah Massoud. And they thought that if they overthrow this government and they collaborated with them, they can somehow end up on top of everything after mm. the whole regime collapsed. But they were uh, wrong because once the regime collapsed, the entire military arsenal, the military depots of the government were handed over to Ahmad Shah Massoud. Oh. And before the fall of the regime, uh, the the, the Soviet Union provided Afghanistan with so many weapons that Afghanistan could basically, uh, if they wanted, they could invade Pakistan or Iran. They had tanks, they had bombers, they had uh, jets, everything. But the entire military arsenal fell into the hands of Ahmad Shah Massoud. And Ahmad Shah Massoud then became the most powerful leader in Kabul, and he wanted to keep the capital. And, 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 and when he wanted to keep the capital, basically he would fire uh, artillery, rockets, katushas, Katyushas, Oragans, everything, against other parts of the city. And uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was basically a sore loser, he was uh, just outside the city and he would fire rockets into the city. So it was something that happened on both sides. The m- smaller groups like uh, the heart party, Hezbollah, that of the Shiite minority, Dostum, they were all involved in this bloody civil war. The reason why most people uh, only remember uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and Ahmad Shah Massoud is because they represented the Two most powerful parties in that civil war, and they were all equally involved in destruction of Kabul and killing about sixty thousand citizens of Kabul.
0: Um, I have a question: Is it a good analogy to see, like you know how in I don't I, well, you probably don't have it in the Netherlands, but in the U.S. we have different. Sometimes when there are drug cartels, they have. Drive by shootouts over their turf to see who can like sell, who can get the most profit. Like, is that a good analogy for the Civil War in that each one wanted to get the most profit?
1: I would say that, let's say you are in uh, South Central Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and uh, the Bloods, the Crips, you know, the rolling 60s, all of them, they don't just have Tech Nines and stuff like that, but they have tanks they have rocket launchers, they have helicopters, and there is no police, there is no government, nothing. So they can just go and demolish entire uh, neighborhoods. Uh, they even took, like, for instance, I am from what used to be the northeast part of Kabul, the flats that were built by Soviet Union. And in that in those flats, most of the people who used to work there, they were former employees of the communist government. So when the regime fell... Jamiat Islami uh, of Ahmad Shah Massoud, their warlords, they came into that neighborhood and they went door to door and tried to kill people that they uh, knew that these guys worked for a previous government, and they took women as uh, booty. Oh my god! Yeah. So so now you see there is a lot of news in Afghanistan. Uh, people are saying Taliban are going door to door to take women and uh, do this and do that. I don't really know to what extent that is really happening, but people are saying that it's happening. But what actually, when first this started, it was in the early 90s. And these parties, they did that to those people. And then they started doing that based on ethnicity. So, oh, this community is from Hazara community. Let's go get them. These guys are Pashtuns. Let's go get them. So it became a war of everyone against everyone. And they did most horrific things to each other. And most mm-hmm. of it is not even documented. I, I had uh, Patricia Gosman of Human Rights Watch on our show. And I tried to ask her, like, in, to what extent is this documented? Because if I speak to Kabul citizens who experienced all that trauma and and, and and all that savagery, I can barely find that in in reports of Human Rights Watch or any any other institutions. It, it's just... Only a fraction of what I hear is actually documented, but that sadly that that's that's how tragic it was.
0: Yeah, um, when a lot of people die, die and there are mass graves, like there's no one alive to tell the story, and it reminds me a lot of um, what happened in Guatemala around the same time, where they would like massacre entire villages, and even today they find mass graves all the time, more and more. Um, so. It sounds horrific. So in this, there are a few different ethnicities. There's Tajiks like Ahmad Shah Massoud. And then there are towards the east, there was a lot of refugees who were ethnically Pashtun. So can you talk about how the group that we n- knew back then as the Taliban kind of got started in that situation?
1: This is uh misconception that uh, Taliban emerged out of refugee camps in Pakistan. Even though everybody keeps repeating that, that's actually what happened initially is that Afghanistan was in a total chaos. And most people uh, who have fled Afghanistan in the first wave, when the communists took over, in total, approximately three to four million people fled the country. Okay. Uh That was the first wave of Afghan refugees leaving Afghanistan. Then after the fall of the communist government, when the civil, before that, the the war, the Soviet Union, their occupation, the war was mostly uh, concentrated in rural areas. But after the fall of the regime, The war was concentrated in urban areas. So that's why in the second wave of refugees, many people left to uh, Pakistan, Iran, and people like us, we fled to Europe because we had the means that other people didn't have. But the Taliban were basically, you know, Afghanistan is a very religious, conservative Mm -hmm. society. So in each village, you have molas, imams, they're everywhere. Not all of them have actually studied at uh, madrasa, so they, they, you know, a, a madrasa could be uh, seen in into in different degrees. Like there, there are madrasas in each village in Afghanistan. You learn the basic stuff, but if you want to be a Maulawi, which means someone who is similar to someone has a would have a PhD in theology, then you have to go abroad. You have to go to Pakistan, India.
0: In India, there's a l- lot of universities that teach, I guess, Islamic philosophy. Like exactly. The-
1: so, so, so for that reason, uh, yes, there are many Afghans who went abroad to India, Pakistan to seek higher learning in theology and Islamic law. But the bulk of the people who were part of the initial Taliban movement in Afghanistan, they were local village mullahs like uh, uh, Mullah Muhammad Omar and his students. They were from Kandahar. It is very popular myth that uh, Mullah Omar studied in Pakistan, he never did. Uh, There is a book being published very soon in English by a Dutch journalist. She basically uh, wrote a biography of Mullah Muhammad Omar, and she explains very uh, well that Mullah Muhammad Omar never studied in Pakistan. He spent most of his life in Afghanistan uh, during the communist uh, regime, etc. But the movement was a grassroots movement from the rural parts of Kandahar, where they try to get rid of the warlords who basically would extort people, kidnap uh, little boys, exploit sexually exploit little boys, so so these these problems uh, resulted in uh, uh, in in a situation where there was no government. The social fabric of the society was totally destroyed after the communist revolution and the uh, civil war. So people the only authority that they knew in, the, in their community were these village mullahs who still had some sort of social standing as some sort of authority so that's why people went to these mullahs and said you need to stop this uh, anarchy do something so these mullahs they picked up a few broken old kalashnikovs and they went after the warlords but because people were so sick and tired of these warlords this Movement became very successful very quickly.
0: I just shared with you this New York Times article where they talk about how uh, these warlords um, raped two teenage girls, like gang raped them after they kidnapped them. And
1: yeah, so this is a, uh, this is a very popular story about how the movement started. There are other versions of this story. But all of them evolve around kidnapping either young boys or girls uh, and uh, sexually exploiting them uh, um, by these warlords. And, and that's basically how it started. Now, once the movement picked up steam and once the, the movement became more than just a local vigilante in just a small community, that's when Pakistan became involved. That's ah. when, uh, yeah, because Pakistan was trying to get its. Um, they would tra- to send uh, freight to across Afghanistan into Central Asian republics, but because of the war, they were scared that they would get robbed. And oh, they, the shipment, the shipment, yes.
0: So they were trying to ship their goods over to, let's say, Iran and Tajikistan. Is Tajikistan,
1: yeah, yeah, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, uh, the Central Asian Republic. So, so. F- there was nobody that Pakistanis could actually count on because it was such an anarchy and the whole world basically forgot about Afghanistan. So when they saw that these guys are actually very effective, that's how the Pakistanis became involved. That's how Pakistanis said, okay, we have to provide these people with whatever resources they need in order to take control of the country. And that's how the relationship between uh, Taliban and Pakistan was established. And once that relationship was established, in the first few waves of war, particularly in northern parts of the country, thousands of Taliban uh, foot soldiers died. Okay, they were killed by the forces of uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud. So when they lost a lot of troops, that's when they called upon Pakistani madrasas to send more young men to join the Taliban that's when when the pakistani madrasa students became involved in afghanistan so Aha. so 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 this is this is an actual chronological uh, story of how basically pakistan became involved and how these madrasas became involved but that's basically the essence of this movement
0: uh, okay um i just want to share one more this thing um where this uh, author, ahmed rashid talks about how in 1993 when he was traveling this about 300 kilometer road he got extorted by 20 different warlords um so uh, it's on page 22 can you just quickly read the first paragraph and tell me if this is accurate, an accurate uh, assessment of how bad the situation was
1: okay so the road from quetta to kandahar goes through uh, spinboldak okay mm-hmm. Spinboldak is a district that was dominated by the Achexay uh, tribe, their own militia. And when he says that he was stopped 20 times across that uh, route, it means that the same militia stopped him 20 times. And it doesn't make sense. I have read that book multiple times. And every time I read, I find more inconsistencies. Okay, <laughs> G- just, okay. Okay. I just was wondering. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, he's an author and he's trying to tell a story. It's not 100% accurate, but it, it's true that there were a lot of checkpoints created by different warlords who would exploit everyone who uh, wanted to use uh, main roads. It, it, that's true. However, Ahmad Rashid is not accurate about the details, especially when he talks about specific time frames and specific areas.
0: Okay. I just wanted to check. Th- I'm glad I asked you. Okay. So it's like, basically, it's hard to even travel, do basics. Like there's no water coming, I'm guessing, and there's very little electricity and things like that, right?
1: Yeah. So Afghanistan uh, never had an infrastructure infrastructure. The, although the communist regime tried to build some infrastructure in some parts of the country, in most of parts of the country, because of the insurgency, they just carpet bombed the entire country, even destroying the local agriculture, which resulted in famine. One of the reasons why Afghanistan cannot still produce enough food to feed its own population is because uh, during the communist regime, The insurgency was based in rural areas, and in order to break the back of insurgency, they just tried to uh, implement a scorched earth strategy. And Afghanistan has not recovered still from that scorched earth strategy, and still we cannot feed ourselves. Uh, But after the fall of the communist regime, what happened is that the, the regime fed most of the population from the food that was being given to that regime by Soviet Union. Uh So, so when Soviet Union stopped uh, supplying food, most people had nothing to eat because there there was no food being produced in the in the you know rural Afghanistan. Uh, So there was famine. There was total anarchy and
0: just curious. This was between 1992 and 1996. Just making sure I have the frame, right. Yes. Okay. Yes. And what did that group that's now known, I guess back then known as the Taliban, like what did they do that? I guess did they marginalize these warlords or like push them all like to the north? Like, how, how did they end up defeating the warlords in
1: 1996? So I know a few people who are actually part of that movement from that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were still young men. Now they're old men, but <laughs> they they say that what happened is that the, all these warlords they were people who were experienced in fighting. Okay, Uh but most people in Afghanistan were not fighters; they're civilians. Okay. Yes. Uh, Especially in rural communities, yes, people can be very tough, but not everyone had a gun. Not everyone could fight, and they were not organized. So, where they were easily intimidated by these warlords, Uh who had weapons, they had uh, armored vehicles, they had everything.
0: Everything from the U the U S dumped billions. I guess they took over the Soviet weapons, so it was yes, probably exactly. every weapon they can imagine.
1: Yeah. So so uh, nobody really even tried to oppose them because they were not organized. However, the Taliban they uh one of the reasons why they are so successful is because they are. Uh, movement that is organized as a religious community where there is a strict hierarchy okay so if someone is appointed as amir or as a leader everyone below him have to obey so if he says go and fight until you die they will go and fight until they die so so what happened is that these mullahmar's forces they would say you know what these these guys these warlords they 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 use drugs they uh, they're not really motivated to fight they're just thugs so if we just rush them they will run away or they will give up and when they did that that be- turned out to be very effective so that's why they were so successful in defeating all these warlord groups because they were zealous and motivated and the warlords were they, they, they were more motivated by worldly material matters <laughs> while these guys, the, the, the Taliban, they were saying, you know what, if he shoots me and I die, I will go straight to heaven. So win-win. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> so that's, okay. that's why they were effective. It wasn't that they had Better military strategy, or that they uh, they were uh, brilliant uh, you know like generals, or, uh, no,, none, not, none, of, none of that. They were just, okay, brute force, go, attack, shoot. If you die, you will go to paradise and uh, you know <laughs> what happens. So that's the real reason why they managed to defeat all these warlords within two years and take over the entire country,
0: ok. What did these warlords do during those five years when? They were, I guess, between 96 and 2001. Um, So I'm going to ask you about two specific ones. Um, What exactly was Hamid Karzai and his family doing during that time? That's the first one. And after that, I'll ask you about another one.
1: So Hamid Karzai is the son of Abdullah Karzai, Mm -hmm. who is a uh, a Popalzai tribal leader uh, from Kars in Kandahar. And they are a prominent family, the Popalzai tribe in Kandahar. They are sort of like the elite, you know. The, the uh, and 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 they didn't have a very significant role as people involved in the insurgency against the communists. Uh, however, Karzai was very well educated. There is a story, a very popular story, that uh, one uh, local politician in Kandahar went to Abdullahat Karzai's home when. Hamid Karzai was still a little boy, and that politician asked him, "How many sons do you have?" And he said, "I have so many sons, but you see that little one? That one is going to even deceive the Satan."
0: Uh, <laughs> and he did. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. So, so that's so. Uh, his father knew that that Hamid is a very, very shrewd, very conniving guy, even when he was a little boy. But he wasn't a very prominent, significant figure. He was not part of a very large insurgent uh, jihadi party. And when Afghanistan was in total chaos, they didn't play a significant role, because they weren't also very powerful warlords, but they had a very strong tribal network, connection with everyone. They had a status as tribal uh, elites. But when the Taliban took over the country, his whole family was outside Afghanistan. So uh, Hamid Karzai's brothers, everyone was outside the country. And as far as I know, Hamid Karzai uh, was in contact with the Americans since the Mm -hmm. 1980s. Okay, they knew him as a translator, as a spokesperson for uh, different uh, jihadi leaders. He was educated in India. He spoke multiple languages. So you see the, the CIA, uh, when they uh, look for assets in very primitive s- communities, they always go for the person who speaks multiple languages, who's s- sort of a cosmopolitan.
0: He's good with the press. I mean, when you see with him at the interviews, he's... Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that's why uh, they uh, sought him out, and uh, he was one of their most important assets because he had good connections with different tribal communities in Kandahar, and he uh, also spoke multiple languages. However, in those uh, five years of Taliban rule, there are many, many stories about what Karzai was doing. What he was actually doing, I don't know. I'm not going to say this theory is, is... What
0: I do know is that in 1999, his brother opened up a lobbying firm in Washington, D.C. Yes. And and spent a lot of money <laughs> lobbying Congress. So that's... Yes, th- that's, that, def-
1: that's, that's a fact. That's a fact. Uh, but there are also other theories that it is being said that Hamid Karzai was also a uh, interlocutor between the Americans and the Taliban. I'm not so sure how true and how accurate this is, because uh, even before the U.S. invasion in 2001, there were many instances of you know uh, Taliban representatives going to even uh, United States talking about uh, Turkmenistan, Pakistan. You know the pipeline. TP. Yes, uh, Tapi. T a p i. Yes. So, so they even say that he was involved in that. Uh, I still have to see uh, all the evidence, but I would say it wouldn't surprise me that if it's true, because he has always been a guy who who knows how to use his network and basically make a profit out of any. Uh, Situation. So Hamid Karzai became uh, more important when uh, Osama bin Laden started to threaten the United States. And the United States felt that this regime might be a um, liability. And they tried to uh, explore uh, ways how they could undermine the Taliban regime. And for that reason, Hamid Karzai was the guy who went to. Quetta in Pakistan, and he uh, gathered all the tribal leaders from Kandahar, the warlords that he knew, and he told him to get ready in case we may uh, be able to go back and overthrow the Taliban regime. So he played a key role in in that uh, particular era, but that was only after the United States came into a realization that, okay. Uh, We have to invade this country, overthrow the Taliban. And that's how much I know about uh, Karzai. Want to learn how you too can learn to deceive the Satan? Catch our live streams on Twitch, Rockfin, or YouTube to learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov by tuning in to Late Nights with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically rockfin.com forward slash historically or search for us on youtube also head over to historically.substack.com to subscribe to our newsletter and listen to previous episodes of our podcast that's historically.substack.com so can we
0: talk about quickly how the so it seems like in December there was some conference between four factions. They call it the Rome Group, the Northern Alliance. Well, I forgot the other two's name. Uh, let, 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 let me just look up. Look, look up the thing just quickly, really quickly. So, how did he end up end end up being the president at the end of December of two thousand
1: and one? I guess. Uh, you see, the Americans. The CIA and other Western countries, they rely heavily on very typical Orientalist understanding of uh, Afghanistan and the region. And that's why, when they said, okay, we need to go and create a government, Mm -hmm. uh, well, this is a multi ethnic society. Well, then we.
0: Oh, okay, hold on. Okay, so it looks like there were four groups there's the Rome group, Northern Alliance group, the Shiite group,
1: the Cyprus group.
0: Yeah, this Cyprus group.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So, so these different. The Rome group was basically the the monarchists, the royalists. Okay, these different groups. Uh, they were all invited, but all of them were people who were already on American side. A lot of them had already received bags full of CIA money. <laughs> uh, so, so it wasn't like they picked all leaders from Afghanistan. No, they picked the ones who they already bought with uh, CIA cash. And these people were invited into the Bonn conference. Now, how they created this group, they saw Afghanistan as a multi-ethnic society. They saw the civil war where these warlords try to use ethnicity and sectarianism to basically create their own support base. So they they explained Afghanistan as this is a very divided country of all these savage different ethnic groups who <laughs> just want to uh, uh, exterminate each other. So what we're going to do is pick a warlord from each of these communities, <laughs> put them together around the table. And then it's very important. You have to check this up. Barnett Rubin A very uh, important author, uh, former employee of the State Department, who was very heavily involved in Afghanistan. In his book that we reviewed in our podcast, there is a quote where he says that Hamid Karzai was then selected as the president because of his Pashtun ethnicity because Afghanistan's largest ethnic groups a group are the Pashtuns mm-hmm. and traditionally Pashtuns have always ruled the country now since we have occupied this country the leader of the uh, of this new government must mm. be symbolically he literally mentions symbolically <laughs> needs to be Pashtun so this has also re- resulted into a lot of resentment among other ethnic groups in Afghanistan, because they said, yes, Hamid Karzai, he may be a big shot in Kandahar, but in the rest of the country, nobody knows him. So why should he be the, the, the new president? Why should he be the interim president? And that's how they basically chose Hamid Karzai. Uh, there was another man, uh, Satar Siret, who is, I think, uh, an ethnic Uzbek, actually. He's- yeah. Yeah he's 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 uh he's a religious scholar a very erudite person speaks multiple languages used to be a university professor in Egypt later in Saudi Arabia but uh, he was a more suitable candidate but the Americans didn't want him they wanted Hamid Karzai because you know They wanted to keep up this appearance of this is a Pashtun-dominated society, so we have to have a Pashtun leader. And that's basically how Hamid Karzai became the president.
0: Ah, okay. That's funny. Um, The State Department also admits that. It says President Bush's special envoy, Khalil Zad, said that Sirat was not a Pashtun and Sirat was told to step aside for Hamid Karzai.
1: Um, yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: Okay, so how was the govern I guess government organized? I know they had a cabinet of various factions of different warlords and some sort of parliament. But one question I have is whenever I look up Wikipedia for a province and you look up one province and you try to look at his governor, it says that oh, he used to be the governor of coast. And then he became the governor of this province. So it seems like it's a rotating circle of the same people over and over. What's going on there? Uh,
1: What they did in Afghanistan is uh, first they uh, paid off different factions so that Ah. they can support the government. Once those factions became part of this joint venture, then each faction would bring X number of their own loyalists of their own people. And they would say, since I'm part of this government, I demand that three ministries are allocated to me. Uh-huh. So my cousin, my wife's little brother, and the, uh, the, my little brother's uh, classmate, they should get three ministries. And my uncle and his sons, they should have four uh, provinces, and if you don't accept that, then I will. Uh, I will. Uh, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will. I will. I will cause trouble. So that's how, for the last twenty years, the government was always a joint venture where different factions would allocate different significant roles within the government, within the executive branch, and the civil service among their own clique. Uh, and, and, and that's why it's so dysfunctional. That's why it was such a big mess. Because, for example, we have Hamid Karzai, who is a president. His brother was governor of Kandahar. And basically, his brother, uh, his his half-brother, his cousin, all of them, They ruled over Kandahar as a feudal regime where they exploited everyone. They had this very brutal militia that would just kill anyone who opposes them and label them as Taliban. And this was just in Kandahar and each and every other province, same scenario with a different warlord, with a different politician. And that's how they created a regime where in the media you would hear about elections and uh, public representatives and minister this and uh, governor that, but in reality it was just a business where where everyone was just dividing parts of this cake among their own, and so that everyone can go and uh, exploit the, that. particular area or a particular ministry. So it was all about money. You could actually buy a governorship. You could buy a a district governorship. Like uh, I know you could become a district governor in districts south of Kabul for $100,000. So if you pay $100,000, you become a district governor in uh, in a province, and you can earn that money back very quickly because you have all these provincial reconstruction teams, you have uh, all these different NGOs, they come to that area to reconstruct. And then, the, yeah, and the reconstruction is basically building roads and building schools and everything, but it's all subcontracted to the private sector. Ah!
0: And that is probably the provincial governor's brother's wife or brother's like sister or whatever. Okay.
1: Exactly. Yes. Yes. And 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 those guys who have those private entities where they take all these contracts from different PRT teams they have their partners who are then Americans, okay? Ah. So, like, Americans were also part of those small, uh, uh, you know, private entities who did all their subcontracting. So mm-hmm. it was all about money. It was all about how to use all the aid money and how to exploit this whole system uh, and, and uh, enrich people who are in power.
0: Okay, so the second warlord I want to ask you about is... um. Ahmad Shah Massoud's little brother, Ahmad Zia Massoud, who ended up being the vice president. So um, how did that happen?
1: Ahmad Zia Massoud and Ahmad Wali Massoud and the deceased Ahmad Shah Massoud, they were all part of a family. I think they are in total six or seven siblings. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But while Ahmad Shah Massoud pursued degree in engineering in Kabul, but he had to drop off and join the uh, insurgency. His brothers, they were not actually involved in the fighting against Soviet Union. They were more involved in the civilian aspect of the insurgency. Uh, In the 1980s, like for instance, these insurgents groups did receive some aid and support from CIA from uh, wealthy uh, Arab leaders mm-hmm. who, uh, ironically, you know, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden and his uh, friends in Afghanistan, they were very closely involved with uh, groups like Hizb-Islami and Jamiat-Islami, who later beca- be- all became allies of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> but these groups, they, uh, they also had to uh, cultivate their own source of income and what uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud's brothers were doing is exploiting the mines for all these rare earth minerals, precious stones, and they basically had a monopoly on that particular field. And that's how they became very wealthy.
0: One last thing I just looked up on Wikipedia, just so you. We, we, apparently, Ahmad Zia Massoud is married to the daughter of Burnal Din Rabbani, so it's like.
1: Burhanuddin Rabani yes yes
0: Hanuddin Rabani so it's like one big family here that's...
1: yes yes so so it's a, it's a marriage of convenience but what happens is that these groups you know in afghanistan if you go north of kabul to the uh, traditional home base of uh, Jamiat islami ahmad shah Massoud, and burhanuddin rabani the people who don't like these guys they call him rock sellers because what they did is is they would exploit people in those mountainous regions to go and dig precious stones, and then they would sell it in the black market. And that's how they became very wealthy. And that's how they even financed their insurgency uh, to some degree, but also later their uh, resistance against the Taliban. But after 2001, when the United States came with big uh, duffel bags full of dollars, mm-hmm. they, they didn't have to rely on selling rocks anymore. So they became uh, very wealthy. They uh, created all different private entities to uh, get projects for reconstruction. They, built, they have invested heavily in real estate in Dubai. Uh, so they, they, they are now multi millionaires, maybe even billionaires.
0: Yeah, apparently he once flew to Dubai with $52 million worth of cash in his plane.
1: Yes, that's true. And uh, that was just an unfortunate incident that he was caught. But in uh, when, when, when you see that trillions of dollars have been spent in Afghanistan, and yet Afghanistan is still dirt poor, 18 million Afghans are uh, going to suffer from famine. Uh-huh. This year? Yes, yes. Uh, all those trillions of dollars that were invested in Afghanistan, they're all in Dubai, they're in Istanbul, they're in New Delhi, they're in uh, in, in United States, in California and, and, and other places. That's where the money was invested. That's how they exploited this whole uh, nation building and became extremely rich. Like, for instance, Ahmad Shah Massoud's son, who is now supposedly the leader of the opposition uh, in Panjshir, he actually lives in London. He plays re- uh, tennis in London, and that's where he's based. Uh, but for, for now, for optics, he's he's now in Panjshir lobbying so that uh, his militia receives financial and military aid. But his home is in London. He, he's not, He doesn't live in his own home district. He doesn't live in Afghanistan. He lives in London. Uh, eating fish and chips. So uh, that's the, the reality of all these leaders. They have just used Afghanistan to become extremely rich. And the Americans, they have uh, said, we will gladly facilitate you as long as you play ball with us. And that's what they did.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, because I read his op-ed <laughs> from Washington Post. And I'm like, why is this He's not even a warlord. He's the warlord's loser son. <laughs> and why is he getting op eds? And
1: they have. Uh, you know, there is also an article that says that they have signed, or they are signing an agreement with a very prominent lobbying firm in D.C. And and that lobbying firm is that Hamid Karzai's no, lobbying firm? No, no. no? No, okay. no, 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 no. Uh, I, I think it's, it's either Brookings Institute or oh, okay, okay. either one of these, uh, one of these, uh, 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 and famous institutions. They are doing the writing of op-eds. <laughs> and they are pitching stories to New York Times and Washington Post. They are arranging these interviews for Amrola Saleh, the vice president,
0: the CIA informant.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They they are doing that. It, it's, it's not something that uh, because uh, Ahmad Masood uh, he's he's a young man. He uh, studied at Sandhurst in UK. He has a, a military uh, degree. Uh, you know uh, he he is a professional, but he doesn't have any military experience. He has never fought in Afghanistan. So uh, it's all about optics. Ahmad Masood, he dresses like his father. He tries to pose for the in front of the cameras like his father, and his whole persona is based on "I am son of so and so." But uh, he's just a young man who needs to just live his life. And uh, I I feel also very uh, sorry for the fact that he basically is playing that role, which is uh, you know. Uh, it, it, I don't I don't think that anyone would like to live a life where they uh, have to be acting in, in such a way that they are basically an agent of instability in their own country.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I just call him a Juan Guaidó.
1: Tune in next week for the second part of our discussion with Sankar.
0: Music for this show is done by RecTech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.